Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Firm Returns Weekly. I hope everyone had a good Christmas yesterday that celebrates it. Um, that's quite a bit that happened last week with a number of different uh, portfolio companies, so quite a bit to dig into. And, and those of you that are subscribed to the newsletter will have seen the the updates that went out about the tiny build equity raise, the, probably the biggest headline thing. And then, uh, yeah, had an update on Christmas Eve, I think, as well, which included just the general events of the week, including one probably standout one, which is talks of a merger between Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount. So we'll get into all of that in this episode. Um, let me just share my screen. Right. So first of all, let's have a little quick discussion about, uh, well, I thought it would be good to maybe talk about some of the underlying factors that have been driving the um, the climb in charter rates we've seen and uh, just been helping out Taylor Maritime Investments. So if we can understand these driving factors, maybe we can understand a bit more how transitory they are and so on. So, yeah, just first of all, you can see a graph, a graph here of um, the Baltic Handy Size Index, which tracks. It's a fairly similar. Uh, it's a good, fairly good comparison for the the type of and size of vessel that, um, and actually age as well. I think it's about it's based on something like a ten year old. Um, Handy size vessel, and I think it's 38 throwaway tons or something like that. Or well, it would be uh, kilotons, I guess. But um, yeah, so it's fairly comparable to the kind of sh uh, vessels that Tiny Build has. Not Tiny Build. Um, Tiny Build's on the mind. Uh, Taylor Maritime, TMI has. And uh, yeah, you can see here they had a pretty, we had a pretty big. Um, ramp up. So it it had a pretty good run up here from its August lows, and actually it was up something like seventy percent or something like that from there. It sort of flattened out, but it dip, dipped down, and now it's taken another run up. Um, since sort of the end of November, and uh, yeah, at this kind of level, we we know I talked about last week. I think they'd managed to lock in some. They started locking in some much higher rate charters, so ones at like fourteen thousand dollars per day, sixteen thousand dollars per day, even one that was nineteen thousand. So, yeah, really starting to get up there in terms of the the size, well above where it was. I mean, I think it was around about at this level, it was around about eleven hundred dollars or something. So, imagine to lock them in. Wait, I think probably above what this actually represents as well in terms of the equivalent daily charter rate. So yeah, but it's sort of rolling over a little bit now. I'm guessing it's going to kind of, as we'll get on to, it's going to probably soften a little bit um, and then plateau. But the uh, and, and possibly even go up a bit more. But there's there's factors in in both directions. So. The first factor is 
the drought currently um, taking place in Panama and also parts of uh, Southern America that is uh, lowering the water level and basically reducing the volume of traffic that can go through the Panama Canal, which is a key route for a lot of it is um, ships going from like Brazil or the USA at southern sort of Gulf of Mexico, um, delivering grain over to to China and other parts of Asia. So it, the journey, the alternative they have to do if they don't go through the Panama Canal here is they have to go uh, through the, the next most efficient route is to go through the Suez Canal and that direction. So it's the other way around the Earth, effectively. Uh, and that's still that's still faster than I don't think that adds something like ten days to the journey, and but that's still faster than it would take. I think if they were to go all the way down, um, to the Cape at the bottom of South America, uh, that would add something like three to four weeks to the journey. Or I can't even, can't remember the exact figure, but it's it's way more. Um, so. Yeah, but so let's just we've got some figures here. So um you can see transits through different locks at the Panama Canal. So we've got the Panamax locks, which there is actually a Panamax um class of of vessel. So there's like a handy size Supermax, Ultramax, Panamax, which is the biggest vessel that can get through the Panama Canal. And there's like a, I think there's a Suez Max as well, which is the biggest vessel that can get through the Suez Canal, and that's quite a bit bigger than the Panama Canal. Um, and then there's uh, they've got these Neo Panamax locks now, which I don't know how they compare to Suez Max, but that they're a bit bigger. Um, and then you've got like Cape size, which is basically vessels that are too big to get through either the canals, so they're just going to go around the capes, the Cape of Good Hope. Um, at the bottom of Africa is probably the most likely. And um, let's have a look here. So yeah, we can see here that dry bulk has been particularly hard hit uh, by the closure of the well, the reduced traffic permitted through the these Panamax locks. It's in just between October and November, it's seen a 47% drop. So really significant. And basically all of these vessels are going through Suez instead. So that's adding 10 days to the journey for those ships. And and also for the ones that are that are going through Panama, there's often a maybe a, a fairly significant queue there as well. So they might be getting delays as well, just not quite as much as the 10 days, which is why they may be sitting there and still going for it. But um, yeah, the effect of all of this is that it's decreasing the supply because the, the vessels are taking longer to get to their destinations at any one time. There's therefore a lower sort of availability of ships. So this is this is probably the biggest driving factor in the moment for this ramp up in, in rates. Um, but sort of offsetting this somewhat is the fact that the same droughts that are 
impacting the Panama Canal, Canal water levels are also reducing the crop yield in um, southern parts of the United States. And I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not sure about Brazil, actually, uh, where they might be in a different situation, but certainly the lower lower states in the US have been having a lower lower yield. I think it's something like in so, about 20% lower or something than last year. So um, that's offsetting a little bit because there's less demand. So it's counterbalancing a bit. And that's kind of what's probably putting a cap on it here. Um, and there's also, I I mean, this sort of is coincide, coinciding with um, what's often a, se- a fairly seasonally weak period anyway over the Christmas and New Year holidays. And then getting into around Chinese New Year as well, similar story. So, yeah, the first, the end of December to sort of mid-Feb is often a, a weaker period for charter rates anyway. And so that's probably another force, just a bit of seasonal weakness that's stopping this, uh, just a, a lower demand, helping to put a cap on the upside for that, um, for those supply-driven price rises but something that's um but i don't think this panama canal issue is going to clear up anytime soon because it's um as i understand it the rainy they didn't get they didn't get enough rain in the rainy season and we're now in the dry season or something along those lines so it's now a case of uh it's going to be quite a few months before we get back to the the rainy season again um, and that you know things will be coming up. So yeah, the situation could is is likely to get worse before it gets better. So we could see this drop even more uh, from this point. And um, there's there's also so now we've got these ships diverting through the Suez Canal. That's actually exposing the dry bulk sector, which is normally only about five percent of traffic through the Suez Canal. Is exposing it to greater. It's, it's making it more vulnerable to the geopolitical turbulence happening in that region, and in particular the um, attacks from uh, Somalian pirates and Houthi rebels um, in the Red Sea. So there've been several vessels that have been impacted here, and it's actually many of the larger shipping. Companies, Mayersk is one that comes to mind. Those other ones, because um, a lot of tanker traffic goes through the Suez Canal. I think it's sort of greater than twenty percent, whereas it's normally about five percent for bulk dry bulk traffic. So, um, and then it's it's even bigger for oil and what have you. I think as well, because obviously a lot a lot comes out of Saudi Arabia and all those which are all located in that in that region. Um, yeah, these attacks basically are causing a lot of the vessels to divert around the Cape of Good Hope. So, uh, rather than going through the Suez Canal, that route, they're going all the way down to one of Africa, which adds, I think, one to two weeks to the journey on top of that. So, you, you've got the 10 days added that, um, the fact they're having to divert through the Suez Canal. And then there's also just the other traffic that the 5% traffic that would have gone through there anyway. 
And then there's on top of that the the fact that I happen to now divert around the southern Cape of Africa. Um those those two things together is probably gonna be as soon as we start to have demand, if they persist long enough, if these this um attacks continue or the threat of the attacks continues in the Suez Canal with the Panama Canal also um uh having having a reduced volume or even in an extreme situation actually fully stops if the water levels get too low. Then uh yeah we could see as demand starts to ramp up again as we get past sort of the period of seasonal weakness um a serious a serious jump from here in fact with uh with rates so something to keep an eye on but hopefully it will just at the very minimum keep rates at uh, a reasonable level that's going to be profitable for uh, a TMI so yeah we will uh, have to follow along with this but so let's move on to Warner Brothers Discovery so we heard um, this week that Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav met with Paramount CEO Bob Backish for what has been rumoured to be early merger talks. We'll have to see how things play out, but there are pluses and minuses to such a deal. On the plus side, it would add 60 million streaming subscribers to Warner Brothers Discovery, though there could well be some overlap. Um, and I think because Paramount Plus is currently not profitable, there's probably some some of those subscribers that would disappear if they had to increase the rates, for instance, um, to actually take them into profitability there. So there's maybe that 60 million figure might end up being a bit lower, but it certainly would help to to give a real boost. It'd be a quick way of of um, Warner Brothers discovery adding a a little adding a jump to their subscriber base rather than having to sort of slowly grow it organically um so yeah it's a uh, there's some potential there uh, and it would also add it would further expand one of brother discovery's ip library there's its content library with things with IP such as Star Trek and Mission Impossible, both being power ones. And then obviously you've got these early hit shows over there like um Yellowstone and and what have you. So um yeah, there's there's a fair amount that of attraction there. But the and I, I think it would also result in the creation of the largest movie studio on the planet, which is pretty crazy. Or oh, maybe movie dis distribute studio and distribution business but yeah the, the other big players disney universal and sony so it's like the big five at the moment so you'd effectively be merging two of those um so that's uh would be quite a phenomenal thing to be the to, for it to suddenly become the biggest movie studio on the planet as well but but on the negatives um Paramount is substantially in substantially worse financial shape than Warner Brothers, and they they'd have to rapidly turn it around before it sank the uh, the combined ship. So 
yeah, there, there's definitely a risk there. I think they've got something like on a their debt. I was thinking about, yeah, their leverage ratio is is significantly higher than Warner Brothers now. I mean, it fairly comparable to maybe where Warner Brothers was when after the the merger, but um, I think it's like six and a half on that. When Warner Brothers is more like five point seven five, I think after the merger. So um, this is a bit the divided by net debt so it could be a similar it's a little bit more than that but the difference is that i don't think they've got the free cash flow coming in to pay that debt down so which is why they're they're in these kind of they're entertaining these kind of merger talks um so yeah they'd have to do a pretty rapid turnaround there otherwise that that added debt burden is then gonna drain going to just be draining all of that free cash flow that was currently being produced by Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, so yeah, it's something I they potentially they've demonstrated they they've done a pretty good job so far with you know the Discovery management, which is effectively now the Warner Brothers Discovery management have done a pretty good job at, uh, really in, increasing the efficiency and turning around. Warner Media so far, so, and I think they did a pretty good job with Scripps, which is a linear TV business they that Discovery acquired before as well. So, certainly possible that it, it could they could manage it, but well, um, it's it just seems like a they're still not in great shape with the debt. You know, it'd be nice to to get the debt maybe to leverage down to you know two and a half times or or two times before they started thinking about some of this, but I guess if they waited that long, you missed the opportunity. But it seems like um, John Malone, who's obviously a big shareholder, one of his discovery is quite positive on uh, the idea of doing something like this to consolidate. So um, yeah, we'll have, we'll have to see how it plays out and, and what the terms of the merger are if it comes about. But, it's not really what I what I was hoping for. I I I was I thought that they had a a pretty good path to um, expand out into all the markets that Max currently isn't available in the UK, lots of European countries, and so on. Could have just grown their subscriber base pretty rapidly from that uh, that approach as well. Um, we do actually have Paramount Plus here, coincidentally, but uh, but not but not Max or even HBO Max before. So, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make it. I'll have to wait until I see the full terms of it and all the rest of it um, before I can have a really solid opinion. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it seems like they had an alternative path, but maybe maybe the, there's some consolidation going to happen anyway. And it's like if uh, one of those discovery doesn't make itself a bit bigger then it's it's maybe vulnerable to being pushed out or you know some other company comes along and does it acquires paramount instead and then apple amazon whatever and that that could still happen you know we could end up in some kind of bidding war where they come in and offer a higher price and outbid Warner brothers um but yeah or Netflix or whatever comes along. So it's kind of we're in a situation where um maybe they're maybe they're feeling 
they need to make a move here to make themselves big enough to to the point where they're not going to be displaced. Um, what's the other factor here? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think um, I think Warner Bros. Discovery was absolutely fine on its own the business, but, but yeah, obviously they seem to think this. We just got to hope that it's not just a, <laughs> not just a an ego boosting, um, empire building move from David Zaslav, which is certainly a possibility. And if that's the case, then yeah, this is this is probably not a good thing. But we'll see, we'll see. Right, uh, and then I'm just going to move on. So I did in a separate article, um, a separate newsletter, I, I talked about the details of the tiny board equity raise. Um, so I'll, I think I'll shift over to that now and we can sort of go through here. I'm probably going to read it out fairly verbatim because I do have some strong views at some points and there's some, and I've tried to lay out all the details and so on as well. So I'll probably just, I'll just read it through and not add too much commentary. Um, <laughs> keep my head at a level. Anyway, so um, on Thursday, the 21st of December, the company sent out an RNS notification explaining, which is regulatory news service, um, for those who are not familiar, explaining the proposed structure of the equity raise. There are three principal parts. A conditional private placement in which Atari which is Atari SA listed in France will commit 2 million US dollars for 31,416,902 shares at a price of 5 pence per share. A conditional placing. So that was the first part. The second part is a conditional placing open only to institutional investors and underwritten by Alex Nishi Porshik, the CEO, for up to 157 million and 80,000 shares at a price of five pence per share, raising a total of 10 million US dollars. So, just for context, we have um, 203, just shy of 204 million shares outstanding now. So, yeah, as you could probably guess at this point, we're talking about pretty damn substantial. Um, dilution. So yeah, we'll we'll get onto that in a bit. But then the third component is an open offer to qualifying stockholders for up to thirty three million nine hundred and seventy nine thousand seven hundred and six shares at a price of five pence per share, raising two point one six million US dollars if fully subscribed. In this offer, each shareholder is entitled to purchase one share for every six they own at a minimum and can request additional shares in excess of this amount subject to availability, i.e. if other people don't subscribe to their minimum entitlement. Alex can only participate in this offer if it is not fully subscribed and to the extent that his maximum subscription, including the placing, does not exceed $10 million. In addition to the above, Alex has a special subscription agreement wherein his shareholding cannot fall below 37.8%, his current ownership stake, after dilution. 
In effect, this means he is entitled to, to subscribe to a sufficient number of the shares issued in the placing to maintain his ownership at 37.8%. In a scenario where all three components of the fundraise were equally subscribed, 222,476,608 new shares would be issued, meaning any existing shareholder who is unable or unwilling to participate in the open offer would incur dilution of 52.18% using the currently issued share count of 203,878,238 shares. Put another way, their shares would confer ownership over less than half as much of the company as they did prior to the equity raise. So just shy of 48% is what you'd be left with. Um, it's worth pausing at this point to say that all of the above requires a shareholder vote on several resolutions to be held at a special meeting on the 18th of January, 2024, and quite a substantial majority is required, as I'll detail later, later on. Following the first announcement, Berenberg commenced an accelerated book-building process to find institutional investors willing to participate in the placing. It's important to note that this included institutional investors already on the shareholder register, so they had an additional privilege over retail shareholders in accessing a much greater portion of the available shares should they wish to offset their dilution. As it happens, it all came to naught, as later that day, when the results of the placing were published, we found out that only 4 million of the available placing shares had been subscribed, leaving Alex to pick up the remaining 153,080,000. Depending on take-up of the open offer, Alex will be able to subscribe for an additional 4 million shares from there, in line with his commitment to underwrite $10 million. This will mean his subsequent ownership of the company will be between 54.47% and 59.66%, depending on the open offer take-up. So in any eventuality, we will now become, so he will now become, majority owner. The following day, 22nd of December, the company sent out a 64-page circular detailing the terms of the open offer and the resolutions they wish to pass at the special meeting. I would encourage all shareholders to read this document and not just rely on what I've written here when making your own judgment. Do factor in that these are the ownership stakes of the director's making the recommendations. So other than Alex, the chief executive officer, who currently has 76,996,000 shares, or 100 shares, which is 37.8%, uh, the next highest is Henrique Olifiers, the non-executive chairman, with 51,000 454 or 0.03% and everybody else the CFO Chaz Salati and the other two non-executive directors Neil Cato and Nick Van Dyke all have nil so they have no absolutely no ownership in the company 
And astonishingly, I own more shares than any director except Alex, who is obviously participating in the equity raise, and not one has bought any as the price has fallen. I don't think I can say this of any other company in my portfolio. So something to think on when you're being given recommendations by these directors. The resolutions. Two resolutions have been tabled entitled the Disapplication Resolution and the Whitewash Resolution, respectively. You can find their full details on pages 59 and 60 of the circular. So these are the resolutions that need are going to be voted on at the special meeting and need to pass in order for this equity raise to uh, consummate. Um, the disapplication resolution allows the company to issue up to 222,481,119 shares at a price of five pence per share in connection with the fundraise. It also requires that shareholders waive their right of first offer with respect to the issuance of new shares in, the, in this case. In order to pass, 75% of the voting power present at the, in person or represented by proxy at the meeting must vote in favour. So crucial here that you have to actually, it's only the people that vote who are going to be counted towards the total, you know, not voting. It, it is not 75% of all shareholders, it's 75% of the people who vote, effectively. And then the whitewash resolution allows Alex to increase his ownership percentage in connection with the fundraise without making a, a takeover offer for the whole company. This will require 50% of the voting power, excluding Alex, present at the meeting to vote in favour. So, yeah, currently he would need if it, it to, it's written into the I think the maybe the bylaws of the company or the original articles of incorporation that he has to if he wants to increase his stake he has to make a takeover off for the whole company, um, and this this resolution would effectively allow him in this particular case to increase his stake without making a takeover off for the whole company. Um, and this same vote for different circumstances, just to be, allow him to buy shares on the market, uh, was attempted to be passed at the AGM and didn't. So that's just a bit of context for you there. Management's perspective. The above paints a pretty bleak picture, so I thought it would be beneficial to try and put ourselves in the heads of management, factoring in the decisions I've sorry, the discussions I've had with them, one of which took place on Thursday, the 21st of December, which was the day of the announcement of the terms of the equity raise and the day that the initial book building took place as well. It's possible that Alex would prefer not to pay the full $10 million, which, to be honest, is fair enough. It's obviously a lot of money for him to personally commit into the company. And so they'll have wanted to get participation from other investors, if at all possible. 
they start testing the waters and get some unexpected interest from multiple strategic partners. These strategic partners obviously want to get the lowest price they can, and Atari is the only one prepared to go as high as 5 pence per share. With a strategic partner in place, they think they'll be able to attract some institutional money in the book build. They also estimate, probably correctly, that retail participation will be low, and the 33,979,706 shares allotted will be ample for anybody who wishes to offset the dilution to do so. There's also, of course, the open market, which is um, retail investors, or the secondary market, which retail investors can access and use without moving the shares too substantially. Um, though, of course, if they all try to do that, then it would. But um, yeah, it's not quite the same as someone who's got 10 million shares or something trying to offset the dilution by buying another 10 million shares. They've subsequently discovered that there isn't any institutional interest beyond the aforementioned strategic partner, so Alex will be providing most, if not all, of the $10 million underwritten. In my recent conversation, I asked them two pertinent questions which I think most shareholders would like answered. The first was what happened to we can cut development spending to zero if necessary, as stated in their last, in their last earnings call. Their answer was that they've already made significant cuts, including the closure of two development studios, and to go further would require cancelling games scheduled for release in 2024 that have a high probability of being profitable and have already incurred millions of dollars in expenses that would be written off if they weren't released. I asked them directly whether these pipeline games that the equity raise is effectively preserving are worth 52% of the company. They said they've run the numbers and do indeed believe the growth in the pipeline is worth more than the rest of the company. To get their thoughts on the likely consequences of the resolutions not passing, here is an excerpt from the circular. Should the fundraise fail to be consummated, the company could seek other forms of funding, although the group's experience of such funds suggests that the terms of such other forms of funding may not be available and or result in significant trans value transfer from stockholders. The directors believe that such alternative funding may not be available at commercially acceptable terms or at all, and the directors would need to balance the receipt of funds with the additional cost of such financing. In addition, to initiatives to provide additional cash headroom, the company may take action to affect a sale of the business as a whole or disposals of assets, such as the disposal of one of the company's businesses or intellectual property. Given the company's immediate cash flow requirements, the directors believe it is challenging to secure a transaction in an acceptable time frame and there can be no guarantee that directors would be able to secure a transaction at a price which they believe is reflective of the full value of the assets being sold. Such a transaction would restrict the company's future growth opportunities and would likely impact the company's ability to maintain or improve its competitive positioning. As a result, 
if the fundraise does not proceed to completion and the company is unable to implement any of the alternative financing arrangements or other actions set out above, the company would be likely to enter into US Chapter 11 insolvency proceedings. The point at which the company would have to enter into US Chapter 11 insolvency proceedings is fundamentally uncertain but would likely arise in January 2024, at which point stockholders will lose all or a significant part of the value of their investments in the company. And finally, is their reasoning for not doing a standard rights issue in which all shareholders would have had equal rights to participate? Had the company made a fully preemptive offer, for example, by way of a rights issue or an uncapped open offer, which might have allowed existing stockholders to subscribe for a larger amount of the overall capital raise, this would have necessitated significant additional cost, reallocation of management time, and a possible delay to the execution of the company's plans. Where do I stand? I lay awake for the whole night on Thursday thinking this over, and I've done little little else in the days since. I find it utterly repugnant that retail shareholders are not being treated the same as Alex and the institutional shareholders, despite the fact that we all own the same common shares that confer equal rights. No excuses will ever change this for me. Management has taken the gamble of setting the price lower on the completely useless advice that they'd be able to attract institutional money. So Alex didn't have to put up the full $10 million. This has fairly predictably not happened and shareholders are being subjected to unnecessarily high dilution for the $2 million raised from Atari. Had they instead followed the proposal myself and several other retail investors put to them to raise the $10 million at 12 pence per share, Alex would have had a very similar outcome. He'd likely have provided the full $10 million and ended up with 53% ownership compared to 54 to 59% that he's going to get in this case. All they've gained from their chosen course of action is an extra $2 million in return for 7.5% of the company and the ire of retail shareholders. Maybe they should have paid more heed to the advice given freely by investors in the company than that given by those with no stake or alignment of interests at a total cost of £300,000. That would be Berenberg. Having said all the above, the following may surprise you. As much as I dislike this deal, I think it is the better of the two options available. Here's my reasoning. Should the vote fail to pass, bearing in mind that it's taking place towards the end of January, then short of Alex making an emergency loan, it's very unlikely they'll be able to raise any funding before the cash runs out. This means a takeover, insolvency, stripping for parts or any number of undesirable courses of action that are entirely out of our control and unlikely to yield more than the circa £20 million valuation implied by the equity raise. I also believe that there is a high probability that games in the pipeline will be commercially successful and 50% of the cash they and the current portfolio generate in the coming years may well be worth more than 100% of the declining cash flows from the current portfolio alone. 
So basically here I'm saying that keeping those games might in the in the long run turn out to be better than cutting all development spending and just living off the the current cash flows which would decline and probably more rapidly if um if if spending was was cut there's also the human factor while many investors may strive to be cold rational decision makers the reality of taking a company and stripping it for assets carries a very human cost Cutting all development spending and just taking the cash flows from the existing portfolio means firing all the staff, many of which have been displaced by the Russia-Ukraine war. Any kind of insolvency would have the same result absent a complete takeover. Even Warren Buffett, arguably the world's greatest investor, found he didn't have the stomach for this type of investing when he had some early experience of it during his partnership days. You might be a little further from the action, but that doesn't mean the reality changes. I don't think, as many people have said, that this is all a scheme for Alex to gain control of the company at a cheap price. The reason being that were the placing an open offer to be fully subscribed, he wouldn't have been able to increase his stake at all. In my mind, the course taken comes down to a misguided view that they'd be able to get greater institutional participation and Alex wouldn't need to make such a large contribution. In any case, I will be voting in favour of the resolutions as much as it pains me to do so. So, um, subsequent to that article, we found out the news that Versus Evil has been shut down. Um, obviously, I, I think there was something like, at this point, 12 employees left um, there. And when they acquired them, it was it was around 50. So it's uh, they'd already reduced down significantly. But yeah, obviously, sad people to lose their jobs and what have you. But it's a uh, that studio has been underperforming for pretty much the entire time thing probably some sabotage going on there from the general manager who was the prior owner as we know from the the lawsuit and him having to basically be paid off and and this this shows that yeah they were true you know tiny Wheels management has been true to their word in taking you know being effectively being blocked by the legal action and being forced to take a uh, a less than ideal deal. Um, bearing in mind, they probably could have won had they had the means to to drag it out and continue legal proceedings, but they couldn't really do anything with the company while that was happening. And and right now, with their liquidity constraints and so on, the best option was just to settle and. Now that has obviously enabled them to take the strategic action, which has been shutting down Versus Don't know what's happening with Red Service. I think that was still a quite that was still a profitable business. I don't see any reason why they would and it's quite separate from Versus So um, I haven't heard any news about that being shut down. Um, that's potentially something that could be sold off. Uh, it's quite an attractive business, from what I understand. Um, 
it either needs to be grown uh, because it's not quite big enough to be optimally efficient or they need to or it could be sold to another player a larger player or something like that in in brazil that would be able to just bring on those additional uh, staff onto the to the payroll and that would allow uh and the connections and what have you with the red service to help them grow and improve their overall efficiency and so on and all I as I understand the pipeline of games um that was being published by Versevel will now be published by tiny build um they're still obviously being developed and I don't know about the more marginal ones but certainly the one I know about is broken roads they've they've put out a statement the developers have said this game's still going on um so yeah it's it's not a happy result but a necessary one that significantly de-risks the company and removes a drain on its resources so i think that pretty much sums it up for this week um again hope everybody had a uh, good christmas that celebrates it and everyone has a good new year um I think it will be. Have a look here. Oh, uh, there might be another. There might be another episode before then. But anyway, I'll say Happy New Year. Anyway, yeah. Um, please, cause, I mean, obviously this this video came out a few days after these write ups. So you know, if you want to get first or or read read along while i'm writing you can find them over on firmreturners.com do sign up there um because they will always the, the newsletters will always go out first before the videos and uh an audio and if you're watching this on youtube give it a like give it a subscribe if you're on a podcast player follow it that's yeah all, all be much appreciated and, and please do do sh- if you're finding these valuable interesting enjoyable whatever um please do consider sharing it with with friends or other people that you know that might be interested as it uh, really helps to to grow the overall audience and, and get it out to people but on that i will leave it and i will see you all next time possibly next year possibly will be next year